Well, friends, I admit that the title of this sermon sounds like a motivational talk. <laughs> you know, if you Google live with confidence, you get more than a billion results, plenty of, plenty of advice on how to have self-esteem, how to boost your self-confidence. And there's clearly a market for this kind of advice. You know, many of us wrestle with performance anxiety. We struggle with perfectionism. I'm sure many of us wrestle with the fear of not measuring up, whether at school, at our workplaces, maybe even in our homes. Many of us struggle with stress, with self-doubt, even seemingly successful people experience what's called imposter syndrome. You know, despite our apparent achievements, we can still feel like incompetent and unqualified frauds. So friends, how confident are we this morning? How confident are we this morning? You know, we tend to understand confidence as a sense of self-confidence, Basically, confidence has to do with being sure of ourselves. The Cambridge Dictionary defines confidence as a feeling of having little doubt about ourselves and our abilities. Hence, to be confident means to have faith in yourself, that you can do it. Hence the motivational talk. You know, one well-known motivational speaker offers no fewer than 18 tips for being confident, such as practice self-love, conquer your limiting beliefs, or use power poses to connect to your inner strength. Yeah, I'd love to see that demonstrated. You know, perhaps when, we, when it comes to spiritual matters, we may think of confidence in a similar way. You know, is our assurance based on how much or little we're doing? You know, how might our confidence be shaken when we stumble into sin or go through seasons of suffering in our lives? You know, how much of our confidence is actually confidence in ourselves? You know, the author of Hebrews wants us to realize that living with confidence means not being confident in ourselves, but being confident in Christ. Biblical confidence is very different from the confidence that is spoken of in this world. Biblical confidence looks outside of ourselves. It's not self-confidence. It's being sure of Jesus. That's biblical confidence. It doesn't look within for inner strength, but it looks outward to our only Savior. And if we trust Him, then our lives should reflect that confidence in Christ. What does that life look like? Now, so far, we've seen how Jesus is better. That's the main theme of Hebrews. We've seen how Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels, better than Moses because he's God's son, not just a prophet. Jesus is better than Joshua, for he saves us into a better rest. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices because by his one sacrifice, his obedient work, his work is sufficient to establish a better covenant with a better hope. Jesus is better. Uh, but so what? Right? So what if Jesus is better? What difference will it make to our lives? 
Will our lives look different because Jesus is better? So our, our text this morning marks the start of a new section in Hebrews, you know, having shown us how Jesus is better. Uh, the author of Hebrews now proceeds to turn mainly from theology to application to help us to live out of this truth that Jesus is better. Our passage really has two main parts. The first part of our passage gives us two reasons for confidence in Christ, and the second part consists of three exhortations, urging us to live in light of our confidence in Christ. So two reasons for confidence, three exhortations to live out that confidence. So here's the big idea. Live out our confidence in Christ by drawing near, holding fast, and encouraging one another. Draw near, hold fast, encourage one another. So let me read uh, our text this morning. We are in Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find the passage on page 946. Uh, Let me read the whole passage for us. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our passage begins with two reasons why we can be confident. And that's really our first point. Christ is our confidence, looking specifically at verses 19 to 21. And both of these reasons are focused on who Jesus is and what He has done. So our assurance does not ultimately depend on us. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our experiences, our emotions, although we may be struggling ourselves, we can still be confident. You know, we, we may not always be sure of ourselves, but we can always be sure of Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is urging us to consider. So reason number one, Christ is our confidence because He is the better sacrifice. Jesus came to do His heavenly Father's will by offering Himself obediently as a sacrifice for sin. The blood of Jesus in verse 19 refers to His death on the cross. That's how Scripture often describes the sacrificial work of Christ. It's it's the shedding of His blood. Because we have sinned against the holy and righteous God, we deserve His wrath against us. But God, who abounds in love, who shows us such lavish grace and mercy, He sent His Son to rescue sinners like us. When Jesus laid down His life, He bore God's judgment in the place of sinners like us that we might be forgiven, that we might be made clean and holy if we repent and believe in Jesus. As the song 
famously says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And by the blood of Jesus, our guilty consciences are cleansed. As, as we heard last week, we are no longer guilty. We're made holy. And Jesus makes us right with God. And he's opened up the way for us to enter the holy places, verse 19. And this, these, this holy place is not some earthly tabernacle or temple. It's not a building in this world. But this holy place is the very presence of God. Jesus, by his sacrifice, has opened up the way so that we can come to God freely. We can come boldly to God who welcomes us, who doesn't grudgingly receive us, but he welcomes us into his embrace because of what Jesus has done. That's, that's confidence. That's confidence. You know, in the Old Testament, in the layout of the tabernacle and temple, you read about how a veil or a curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. So the high priest could enter the most holy place only once a year on the annual Day of Atonement. And he would have to pass through that curtain to enter into the most holy place. And that curtain symbolized the separation between holy God and unholy sinners. But when Jesus died on the cross... And this is how his death is described in Mark's Gospel. The curtain, or this is what happened when, when Jesus died. Say the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, that, that's Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. When Jesus died on the cross, that temple curtain was torn, was rent asunder. And Jesus' flesh was literally torn to reconcile God and sinners. And praise God that that curtain no longer represents a separation between us and God, but that curtain now represents the way that we come through to God because the curtain has been torn in two. And we come through that torn flesh, the broken body of Jesus. That's how we come to God. We come to Him freely. And Jesus has opened, the, opened for us the new and living way, verse 20. Uh, it is new because Jesus has established a new covenant relationship between us and God. By His once-for-all offering for sin, Jesus has done away with the sacrifices of the old covenant. And now, under the new covenant, we are fully and finally forgiven once for all. And God remembers our sin no more. Thanks to Jesus' single, all-sufficient Sacrifice, there is no longer any need for additional sacrifice for sin. You know, beloved, do you realize that there's nothing we can do to add to our forgiveness? Not our works, not, our, not the goodness of our character, not our virtue, not even our Christian growth. We can't add to our forgiveness. It, it's, it's done. It's accomplished. Uh, Jesus has opened for us the new and living way. And the way is living because we serve a risen Savior. Jesus lives. Therefore, the way that He's opened up is living. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, we, we serve a living priest, not a dead priest like in the Old Testament. 
Our Saviour lives. He has conquered sin and death, and He will return to save those who trust in Him. And if we are in Christ, we can look forward confidently to our own resurrection together with our living Saviour. As it says in John's Gospel, Jesus is the way, the truth, the resurrection, and the life. He's opened up for us a new and living way to come to God. And that, that's ground for confidence. That's why whatever you're feeling this morning, whatever you're going through, however you may have failed even in this past week, Jesus is our confidence. He is the better sacrifice. And reason number two, Christ is our confidence because He is the better priest. Uh, that's what Hebrews says in verse 21. We have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus has become a priest, it says in chapter 7, by the power of an indestructible life. 7 verse 16. You know, unlike the Old Testament priest whose service was cut short by death, Jesus ever lives to help us, to pray for us. I think, I think that's so comforting. Right? I, I think we should realize that our prayer life is better than we think. Why? Because we have a Savior who ever prays for us. He always intercedes for us. And that's encouragement for us to pray. Therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7 verse 25. And unlike Moses, who was faithful in God's house as a servant, Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. He's a priest over the house of God because he's God's promised king. He rules over his people with love and goodness. He cares for us as the great shepherd. Now you realize that this confidence that we have in Christ is not self-centered. It's not founded on our competence, does not depend on our performance, certainly does not rely on our accomplishments. You know, this confidence is not due to our virtue, not due to our works, doesn't depend on how long you've been a Christian, does not depend on how we think or feel or what we're going through. Some, some of us go through dark times in life, don't we? We struggle with depression, with discouragement, but this confidence does not depend on that. It's confidence in Christ. It remains steadfast in the storms of life because it is anchored in Jesus, our better sacrifice and our high priest. And I think Hebrews is exhorting us to look beyond ourselves and to find our confidence in Christ, to keep trusting Him, whatever you're going through in life, however disappointed or let down you may feel this morning. You know, to be confident in Christ means to have boldness because of Him. Boldness to approach God. Boldness to come to God and ask for mercy and grace. Boldness to be assured that God is our Heavenly Father and we are His beloved children simply because of what Christ has done for us. Now, verses 19 to 21 recap and sum up what we've seen so far in Hebrews concerning Christ. And Hebrews wants us to know that we shouldn't be content 
to let these truths remain intellectual, uh, to let these truths simply remain head knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah, we know the gospel, but, but how does it change our life? How does it, how does it impact how we live? You know, if th- therefore, if you look at verse 19, uh, the first word there is therefore. Right? The word therefore tells us that we must apply these truths and make the effort to live in light of our confidence in Christ. Like the original readers of this letter, we mustn't drift away. We mustn't take God's grace and the gospel for granted. You know, don't lose heart and lose sight of Jesus. Since Christ is our confidence, you know, how should we live? Right? What practical steps should we take? What does this look like practically to live out of our confidence in Christ? Which brings us to our second big point, you know, live out our confidence in Christ. And we look at verses 22 to 25. So, so in these verses, Hebrews is saying to us, since Jesus is the better sacrifice, since Jesus is the, the, the great high priest, therefore live in this way. So from this point on in Hebrews, the author focuses more on application. And the rest of the letter will unpack specific ways to live out our confidence in Christ. But here we have three main exhortations in the form of three let us commands. Let us draw near, that's the first one. Let us hold fast, the second one. And let us encourage one another. That's the third one. Three, let us commands. So this is what it looks like to live with confidence in Christ. We will live a life of worship. How? By drawing near to God. We will live a life of truth by holding fast to the gospel. We will live a life of love by encouraging others to press on in Christ. This is what it looks like to live confidently. Worship, truth, and love. So let's think first about what it looks like to draw near. Verse 22. Since Jesus has opened for us the new and living way, let us draw near. What does it mean to draw near? Well, we draw near to God in worship. We have been saved to glorify God. Not to go back to living our old lives, but to really live new lives for the one who has rescued us by his grace. It says later on in Hebrews 12, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Thanks to Jesus, God accepts our worship. Do you realize that when we gather here on Sundays, We can have the confidence that our songs are pleasing to God, that our prayers are pleasing to God, that our scripture reading is pleasing to God, and all that we do here is pleasing to God. Why? Not because of how well we do them, but because of what Christ has done. Otherwise, all this is in vain. What, What a glorious encouragement that all that we do as we gather as God's people is acceptable to God because we offer it through Jesus Christ. That's the confidence we have, that this gathering is not in vain, that we're not giving to God empty worship, but that God receives what we do because we have been cleansed and made holy by the blood of Jesus. So all the more reason to worship, all the more reason to give thanks and praise to God for the gospel. 
Through Jesus, says in Hebrews 13, we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Now, we don't bring animal sacrifices anymore, but we bring the sacrifice of praise. How? By speaking God's praise, by singing God's praise, by speaking prayers of praise, of confession, of thanksgiving, of supplication to God. That's how we are worshipping Him, by speaking His Word, hearing it and then speaking it to one another. That's how we're worshipping God. You know, worshipping God obviously includes gathering regularly with God's people for corporate worship. This is a time where we gather and worship God together. You know, as it says in verse 25, you know, don't neglect to meet together. You know, don't take our gatherings for granted. You know, this gathering has been blood-bought. Do we take it for granted? You know, if Jesus has secured access for us, and, and this gathering is a key part of that access, and certainly we'll treasure the gathering of God's people. Jesus has given His life so that we can draw near to God together as God's people. Certainly, we can wake up a bit earlier on Sunday mornings. Certainly, we can be a bit earlier at church. Certainly, we can put up with some inconvenience on public transport together with God's people if our Saviour has laid down His life to make this gathering possible. You know, but more than our weekly corporate gatherings, worship is all of life. You know, Paul exhorts us in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, drawing near to God in worship means not just gathering on the Lord's day, but devoting our whole person, every aspect of our life. Nothing is out of bounds to God, is it? Because He's purchased us, body and soul. You know, whether it's singleness or marriage, whether it's parenting or childlessness, whether it's work or retirement, health or sickness, we live to the glory of God. That's what it means to draw near. We draw near with our whole lives, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice for the glory of God. And we do that because Christ has saved us. We draw near to God in prayer. You know, our, our prayer life may be a struggle. I think if you, if you ask a Christian, uh, how's your prayer life going? More often than not, we, you know, we say we could be better. You know, we may be inconsistent and distracted. We may forget what to pray for. You know, we may find ourselves at a loss for words. Our prayers may sound clumsy and inarticulate. But don't lose heart. God hears us not because of the excellence or eloquence of our prayers, certainly not because of the length of our prayers, but God hears us because Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Jesus opened, has opened up the way, and therefore we can draw near in prayer. And that gives us confidence to pray However much we struggle in our prayer life, you know, we're, we're, we're encouraged to pray, knowing that our prayers will be heard on Jesus' account. So pray, friends. Let, let's, let's pray with boldness 
in Christ. Let's come to him with the confidence that we are heard for Jesus' sake. We draw near to God through his word as well. Because God has spoken finally and fully through his son, we can know God and come to him. To know God, we must know Jesus. And how do we know Jesus? We, We listen to the word of Christ. We hear God's word, the Bible. So to draw near to God means to pay closer attention to his word, which is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in his son. We know God by knowing his word. We we ask him to speak to us through his word. We come to him through his word and we receive spiritual food that nourishes our souls through his word. So beloved, draw near to God. Draw near to him in worship. Draw near to him in prayer. Draw near to him through his word. So we've thought about what we do to draw near Let's now consider how we draw near. Well, Hebrews in in this passage goes on to say in verse 22, firstly, we draw near how? With sincerity. That simply means with a true heart. The the heart refers to who we really are on the inside. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our motivations, our desires, our affections, and our will. So we draw near to God with a true heart with sincerity, with a a genuine desire to come to Him. How is this possible? Well, I think this reminds us that we can only draw near if we've first been changed from the inside by God's saving work through the Spirit in us. God converts us, His Spirit changes us from the inside out, and therefore we're able to draw near to Him with a true heart because God gives us new hearts. So we draw near, not just going through the motions of external religion, but our devotion to God is inward. It flows out from a heart that's changed. Secondly, we draw near with certainty, verse 22, in full assurance of faith. And again, this isn't proud or self-righteous. It's not a sense of entitlement. Rather, we draw near with a humble, joyful certainty that it is the fruit of faith faith in Christ because we trust in Him to save us. And we can therefore be sure that when we draw near, God will not turn us away. When we come to Him, He welcomes us. We draw near in holiness, verse 22, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Who shall come into God's holy presence? One who has clean hands and a pure heart. You know, only Jesus can give us new hearts. Only Jesus can make us truly clean. He has cleansed our consciences. He's removed our guilt. And the washing of our bodies here in verse 22 probably refers to baptism, which is the outward sign of inward spiritual cleansing. Baptism is a picture of how our old sinful selves have been crucified with Christ. We've died to our old sinful selves and we've been raised with Him to new life. So we draw near to Him in holiness because Jesus has made us holy. So we draw near with sincerity, we draw near with confidence, we draw near with holiness. Thanks to Jesus. 
So draw near, friends. Draw near to God because of the confidence that we have in Christ. A second let us exhortation is hold fast, verse 23. Since Jesus is our confidence, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Just as we are to live a life of worship, we are also to live a life of truth. Right? Confession here in verse 23 refers to how we affirm our belief in God's truth. Right? We confess or we profess our belief in God's truth, that we hold fast to this profession of faith. Now, Christians throughout the ages have adopted statements of doctrine known as confessions of faith to express what they believe. You know, for example, one of the earliest Baptist confessions is the Second London Baptist Confession in 1689. Right? Baptists then have always confessed that they believe this truth about God, about Jesus. And in fact, our, our own statement of faith is largely based on the Baptist faith and message, which was adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention in the U.S. in 2000. We confess the, the faith together through these statements of faith. The Hebrews verse 23 is exhorting us to know that sound doctrine is vital for our spiritual health. That's what it means to live with confidence. We hold on to the truth Therefore, we affirm our statement of faith when we gather for corporate worship. We're reminding ourselves of what we believe. We're reminding ourselves of the need to hold on to the truth. Here, we are exhorted to hold fast to the hope we have in the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, we have a sure hope of glory. And we look forward, fully assured, that Jesus will come back to bring us home to be with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth. And we shall see Him face to face. We shall share in His joy and glory. We confess that hope together. We say, yes, you know, we believe this gospel. We believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that He has saved us and He will glorify us. We boldly confess this truth because of the confidence we have in Him. And that's something that we do together. And Hebrews repeatedly urges us to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. You know, we are God's people if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope. And we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, since we have a great high priest, we let us hold fast our confession. Don't give it up. It's a good confession. It's a sure confession. It's a true confession. Hold on to it. Help one another to hold fast to the gospel. Let's be in the Word regularly, that we're reminding ourselves from the Word of the truth of this confession. Don't turn away from Jesus to anything else. He is our true hope. He is our only hope. Be faithful, Hebrews says in verse 23, because he who promised is faithful. Even as we hold fast to this confession, we do so trusting that this God in whom we trust is faithful. He will not let us down. He will keep his word. He's promised us eternal life and glory in Christ, and his promises cannot fail. 
So this is not a blind confession. This is not an irrational confession. This is a confession based on God's trustworthiness. So cling on to our gospel hope, beloved, because God is true and trustworthy. Help one another to cling on to our confession of hope. And then finally, the third exhortation to encourage one another, verses 24 and 25. So since Christ is our confidence, Hebrews urges us to take this same confidence and to speak it to one another, to encourage one another with this confidence that we have in Christ. Now, we have wonderful news to speak to one another. You know, when we come to one another with our problems, with our struggles, you know, we're not just giving one another good advice. We're not just giving one another platitudes or well-meaning thoughts of encouragement. And we're, just, we're not merely sharing optimistic sayings with one another. Oh, when we come to one another for help, and we are speaking this same confidence that we have in Christ. We have something precious to share with one another. Not, not coming from our own wisdom, but from the very Word of God. And, and this wonderful news that we have in the Gospel, this confidence that we have in the Gospel, truly encourages one another. So let's be free in speaking this Gospel to one another. That, that's how we are encouraging one another with this confidence that we have in Christ. Verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I think this third exhortation tells us that we can't do the first and second exhortation on our own. We need other Christians to spur us on to draw near to God because there will be times when we'd rather run away. There will be times when we'd rather hide from God and we do need a faithful brother and sister to come alongside us and to say, don't run, don't hide, turn to God. We need others to spur us on to hold fast to the truth because there will be times when we will be tempted to forsake the gospel for other things we imagine to be better than Jesus. And that's when we need a brother or sister to come alongside and say, don't turn away. Hold on to this hope that you have in the gospel. Nothing is better than this. The, the, the sin that seems so attractive in the moment, it will let you down. So how should we encourage one another? Well, first, Hebrews says, uh, consider. Right? Let us consider. Consider. What does it mean to consider? Well, it simply means to think, to be intentional about encouraging one another. You know, be thoughtful about coming alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ to build them up. Uh, I think the, the, the word consider reminds us that mutual encouragement doesn't happen by chance. Right? We, we don't simply accidentally encourage one another. Right? It, it doesn't always happen spontaneously. We, we do have to give it thought. We do, it, it does require intentionality and deliberation. Right? We, we need to plan to do it. Consider how we might do it. 
don't be self-centered. I, I think our struggle oftentimes is that we focus only on ourselves. We don't consider our brothers and sisters who are in need of encouragement. So Hebrews exhorts us to consider them, consider how we can come alongside them and build them up. Consider others. Think about how they are doing. Are they struggling with sin, suffering? Are they discouraged by disappointment or doubt? Consider them. Ask them questions. Be a good listener. Think about how we can speak the truth in love to them as fits the occasion. All that takes thought. It takes wisdom. It takes prayerful planning that we may give grace to one another. Consider how to do it. Make time. Make plans to meet up when we gather on Sundays for corporate worship, when we meet in small groups during the week, when we meet over a meal or coffee on a work day. You know, all that takes effort, thought, planning, intentionality. Those things are not going to happen on your own. So I urge us, beloved, to consider, you know, practically do these things. Take active steps in our lives to see that these things happen. Because otherwise they won't. Consider how we may stir up one another. You know, I, I pray, don't, don't, don't be content to merely pop in and out of service on Sundays. You know, find ways to do spiritual good to one another. This is a vital part of what it means to be a member of this local church. Membership means basically showing up. We can't be a faithful member if we don't show up. That, that's the urgency of what Hebrews is saying to us. We need to show up so that we can see one another and encourage one another. You know, stir up in verse 24, it's a really strong word. And it's often used in a negative sense in Scripture because stir up means to provoke. I think if you read the older translations like the King James Version, it says provoke one another. So, you know, don't stir up discontent. You know, don't stir up distrust. Don't stir up disunity. Don't provoke one another to anger or irritation. If you must provoke one another, provoke one another to grow in Christ. Provoke one another to love and good works. You know, it's like how we exercise, don't we? I mean, oftentimes when we embark on an exercise regime, what do we do? We, we, we ask someone to come along with us. Why? Because we know that we need someone to poke us regularly. Otherwise, regular exercise, the discipline of regular exercise is a difficult thing. Same thing with the spiritual life. If no one pokes us regularly in our spiritual lives, if we don't encourage people to come poke us, it's easy for us to get complacent. It's easy for us to get lazy. Maybe easy for us to get self-righteous or proud, thinking that, hey, I'm good. You know, we need brothers and sisters beside us to exhort, to motivate, to incite to kind of lovingly poke each other to love and good works. Sometimes we need a kick in the pants. Right? We need people around us who encourage us by their words, by their actions, by their faithful examples. You know, as, as we see a faithful brother or sister doing good, you know, that encourages us to do likewise. You know, we need faithful examples. And, and the church is the place where we see faithful examples. 
And I pray that we will also be that faithful example who will encourage other believers to love and good works. You know, that, that's the precious opportunity that we have. So don't stir up one another to bad things. Stir up one another to love and good works. Jesus has saved us from dead works to do good works that bring life, to do good works that bring encouragement, to do good works that foster love and unity and joy. So think about it. Even the conversations that you have this morning, after you have a conversation, you walk away from that conversation, you ask, did I stir up that person to love and good works? Or have I discouraged this person? <laughs> a simple question, right, we can ask in our conversations. After a conversation, how have I stirred up this person to love and good works? Have I helped? Or have I hindered? Second, you know, we gather regularly, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I think it's quite striking in verse 25 that, you know, whatever we think about the early church, whatever ideal picture we may have of the early church, they struggled with the problem of non-attendance. The early church had the problem of non-attending members. Now, some had made it a habit of not gathering with the rest of the church for corporate worship and fellowship. Now, Hebrews urges us to not allow our absence to become habitual. Because once it does, it's hard to break that habit. Now, once we have a habit of not gathering, our hearts will grow colder towards God's people. I guarantee that. It's a bit like marriage, right? If we don't see our spouse, then our hearts will grow colder and colder to them. We need to meet together regularly to, to warm our hearts for one another. Now, God commands us to come together every Lord's Day for corporate worship. You know, it's understandable if we can't come for health reasons. You know, pray for those among us who can't gather because of health reasons. You know, find ways to encourage them. Visit them if we can. But if we refuse to gather, although we are able to, then we are disobeying God. If we profess to be a Christian but show no desire to gather regularly with God's people, then we need to ask, are we really in the faith? How can we claim to follow Jesus if we refuse to meet with, let alone love, his people? First John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, but he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So church attendance isn't just a religious duty to check off. Uh, the goal of this gathering is not just to worship God, but the goal of this gathering is to encourage one another to grow in godliness. Hebrews wants us to see how gathering regularly is necessary for our spiritual well-being. It's not optional. Now, we may have heard the saying, seven days without church makes one week. Indeed, how will we encourage one another if we don't see one another regularly? If we're not consistently meeting with one another 
hearing God's word together, sitting under God's word together. You know, some, some ways say, hey, there are other ways, right? But isn't this presumptuous of us? If we're refusing to live, if we're refusing to use the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us, isn't it presumptuous to expect encouragement from other means if we don't avail ourselves to the ordinary means of grace? Not gathering regularly is selfish. Now, why? Because if we don't come, we are depriving our brothers and sisters of the encouragement that we could give them if we simply showed up. Beloved, let's not be self-centered in how we think about the church. Some say, hey, I'll go if it's convenient. I'll go if I feel like it. I'll go if I'm not too busy. I'll go if I like. No, no, God, God wants us to be encouragers. All of us. You know, not just the leaders, but all of us. Encouragers and not just consumers. I, I hope we realize that our spiritual health and our perseverance depends on one another. The, our perseverance in the faith is a community project. Just as it takes a village to raise a child, so it takes a church to grow a Christian. Now, in this fallen world, we face many dangers, toils, and snares. We cannot run the race of the Christian life on our own. We you know, don't think of the Christian life as a solo sprint but think of it as a team relay. We need teammates to urge us on, to help us press on, to run alongside us, to kind of pull us along when we don't feel like running. So I pray that we will all get plugged in to the life of the church. Don't keep one another at arm's length. Think about ways we can encourage one another, be encouraged by one another. Sometimes it begins by just showing up regularly. So if you're not a member of a faithful gospel-preaching church, then can I encourage you to join a local church for the sake of your own soul? If you are a member of GBC, then I pray that we as fellow members, we would seek to cultivate diverse spiritual friendships that go beyond our comfortable social circles, but we'll be seeking to build friendships across the body of Christ. Because different parts of the body of Christ can do good to us in different ways. And we can do good to them in various ways as well. Now, come on time for corporate worship. Don't rush off afterwards, but linger. Get to know one another, catch up with one another. Talk about how God is encouraging you. Talk about what God is teaching you from His Word. Pray for God's help to grow in our practice of love, and mutual encouragement. You know, attend our members' meetings, like the one today after the service. You know, be a part of the life of the church. Uh, this is our responsibility as fellow members. This is how we encourage one another. Come pray together once a month on a Sunday as we gather for our monthly prayer meetings. Meet with other church members during the week. Read the Bible, share life, pray for one another. Why, why do we do all this? Right? Not simply because we have some religious duty that we're trying to check off, but Hebrews says because the time is urgent, verse 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. That's why these things are so serious. 
Judgment is coming. Jesus' return is approaching, and when he comes back, there will be a final judgment. Therefore, Hebrews says to us, urge one another to keep pressing on, because that day is coming. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another to stay true to Christ while it is still the day of salvation. Remind one another of our confidence in Christ. Encourage one another to keep drawing near while we can and to hold fast to the gospel. That day is coming. May the Lord find us faithful on that day. Let's pray.